Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 755th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. In today's garden chat, rain, rain, go away. Whoever said that never had to water a garden in the summer months. Join us as we chat with our good friend and water harvesting educator, Don Titmus about boosting our water resources for our gardens with a few simple systems that can quickly pay for themselves. Don Titmus grew up in London at the age of 16 and spent four years being trained in horticulture through an apprenticeship and college course. From there, he continued landscaping in his hometown until he moved to Arizona in 1981, where he worked in landscaping and then started his own business in garden maintenance. In 2003, he attended a permaculture design course, which was life-changing for Don. He knew right away that this was the path he'd been waiting for, and later attended two permaculture teacher trainings. He co-founded with me the Phoenix Permaculture Guild, started a permaculture design company, redesigned his home site to a permaculture design destination, and helped develop a thriving permaculture community in Phoenix, Arizona, and pretty much lives what he breathes. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson with Urban Farm U and Urban Farm Podcast. I am here with Don Titmus with the BOASIS in Mesa, Arizona. Hello, Don. Hello, everyone. Hello, Greg. Don and I, we've been ha- having fun for, oh, almost 20 years. Almost yeah, 20. I was going to say almost 20 years. Uh, Don and I uh, met, I think you came to a... Dances of Universal Peace in my backyard at the Urban Farm. Isn't that how we met? That's right. Yeah. November of 03. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And had you already done your permaculture design course? I had that very summer in during uh, July. Yeah. Uh, so I was just months out of my design course and looking for local permies. And there it is. There you were. There I was. <laughs> yeah. A permaculture design course or a PDC is a 72-hour introduction to permaculture. Is that pretty close? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it was a game changer in my life. And I had actually done mine in 1991. What was one of your big takeaways from your PDC, Don? Oh, goodness. It's everything. Permaculture is everything. It's uh, the whole system is us trying to manage the entire biosphere, permaculturists can just start to arrange things and set things up and move things around and make sure that the relationships are beneficial and do all kinds of things on a design level, which makes it way more sustainable. Yeah. I don't even like that word. Sustainable simply sustains the mess we've created. we got to move into what's called regenerative. Yeah. And that's part of the course. We're explaining, yeah, sustainable is fine, but regenerative is where we want to be because you have the most resilient home site when you have more. Yeah. More. more, I don't know. You said when you have more. Regenerative. Oh, very good. Systems. (laughs) Cool, cool. So why are we talking about 
permaculture when we're here to talk about water. Because water is like the essence of life. And we have to talk about the sustainable regenerative practices of utilizing all of our water sources in the most efficient and an appropriate manner. Yeah. And so I lived, for those of you that don't know, I lived in Phoenix for 54 years. Took me a minute there. And I gardened in Phoenix for 54 years. So I'm very familiar with gardening in the desert and water management in the desert and water harvesting in the desert. And in, in Phoenix, in the Phoenix metropolitan area, we get a, between seven and eight inches of rain a year. That's it. And most of it comes in the winter in a, over about two months and in the summer and over about two months. And it's no big deal for us to go four, five, six months without any rain at all. It's happened. Yeah. And that is one water harvesting challenge. And the other side of that coin is where I moved to in Asheville, North Carolina, we get three to five inches a month. And so that's a significantly different water harvesting management program. Yeah, you're in a temperate ecosystem, correct? Not quite sure what that means. But... Tempera, as opposed to Arctic or desert or oh, yeah. subtropical. Yeah. A temperate rainforest, a temperate zone where you have four seasons and you have yeah. c- consistent rainwater, but some dry spells. So everyone yeah. has dry spells. Even Oregon has dry spells. So we're going to deal with that part of it for the watering needs yeah. exactly. as we go. One of the things that I've discovered here is that people don't irrigate here. Irrigation supplies aren't available here because generally we get enough rainwater to manage out our stuff. So it's significantly different. Wow. And I've actually been overwatering my potatoes and killed them. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, Yeah, you can't be doing that. Especially yeah. in the in those conditions now. So watering your garden. Let's start with water sources. Where does your water come from for your garden in the desert, Don? Uh, garden primarily because I'm in the desert and I don't get a lot of rain. Even though you said we get seven to eight inches, that's the state record. And that is at Sky Harbor Airport, oh. which is actually in the shadow of South Mountain. So go out beyond Sky Harbor Airport and they get more water. Mm -hmm. I normally get around 12 inches of rain because I'm in Mesa, which is east of Phoenix. So between 10 and 14, so 12 is my average. And so I harvest from there, but I'm primarily locked into the city supplied tap water, which is polluted. I consider chlorine a pollution. Sorry. There you go. It's that, great okay. to, to purify the water, but it's yep. horrible for the garden. And our bodies, for that matter. And our, and ingesting it in our bodies along with fluoride. So, so those yeah. two things, chlorine and fluoride, not good for us or our plants. The other reason you want to harvest 
not use rain, tap water is because of its hardness value. Like mm. Texas is renowned for really high hardness levels. You can't even drink it. It tastes so terrible. And so wow. they harvest the rain and then they filter that. I go with tap water first, then I go with rainwater second. And I've always got a backup system with my rainwater. It backs up everything else. So even if the grid goes down, I've got some stored water that I can keep watering my food with. Cool. And then at the urban farm, when I lived at the urban farm, I had flood irrigation. And then anybody that has air conditioning, especially this time of year, has something called condensate that drips out. I used to get like a gallon a day of condensate at the urban farm in the summertime. And that's pure water. Yeah, that's great. Yep. And you can use it inside, like for your iron, for the steam iron, or for for topping up the old batteries where you you flip the top and you put more water in the batteries. Oh, my gosh. I remember those days. (laughs) Or you just use it to water your plants. Yeah. So really, the first thing to do to get your garden watered is really do a survey of your space on figuring out what water supplies that you have and what second use water supplies you have. What's a second use water supply, Don? Second use is referred to as gray water, which is usually the tap water that you generally end up using twice, like from the bathtub, the shower, the sink, those kind of things. Yeah, that's considered gray water, which is perfectly fine for your landscape, especially yep. for your ornamentals. Yep. Not great for your le- green leafy veggies, but right. okay for perennials. You don't want to add extra water where you don't need it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then another second use, and I did this at the urban farm for quite a few years, is I had my evap cooler. So in, in the desert, it's dry most of the year, and you can use an evaporative cooler. Yeah. An evaporative cooler uses water to cool the air. Yes. But it also kicks out a certain amount of water that it that it just to flush the system. Yeah. To keep it from getting too many salts built up. Yeah, that's what I have. I have a 24-hour flush. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so one of the things that I used to do at the urban farm is I went from the evaporative cooler to the fish pond to the garden. That's something called stacking functions. Can you tell us about that, Don? Absolutely. So the more times you can use, in this case, water, the more regenerative of a system it would be or the more sustainable it would be because you're putting the water to use three, four, five times, depending on, you know, where. once it's in the garden, now the water is in is in the plants that you put in there. That water goes back into your kitchen and you're cooking with it and then you're feeding your body and then what it goes in your body has to come out too. So the cycle never ends. That's regenerative. Right? The circular. It's the circular. Circular circular economy. Biodiverse, dynamic, whatever you want to call it. All those bling words. Yeah, exactly. All right, good. So once you do a right, exactly. Once you do a survey of the water supplies that you have available to you, what's next? 
You could go, there are tables, records of, for instance, an Appella Verde tree. They have the scientific work done where they can say, okay, this tree needs X amount of water per month for its existence. And they do that for each and every plant in this area because we need to know that because we've got a dry land situation. We need to know what the minimums are. And you can create some kind of a inventory knowing, okay, I've got X number of trees that require this much. And I've got X number of shrubs wow. that need this much, X number of ground cover that needs this much. I got so many square foot of lawn that needs this much. And then you can do your calculations. Then you can see, okay, how much water do I need to harvest, purchase, or whatever it might be to be able to keep my garden as is, or whether or not I can add more based on my water calculations. Yeah. And that's more important in the desert. Yes. Than it is where I'm at. Yes. Much more important. Yeah. So figuring out how much water you need would be good. But then there's also building a soil profile that holds water. Yes. You got to make sure that you can maximize the effectiveness of the water that may be scarce or may be in abundance. Like you say, if you have too much water, that's just as damaging as too little water. Yeah. So I grew up in England. I put in French drain systems to move water away from buildings so that the building foundation wouldn't crumble, especially historic buildings. I did quite a bit of that there, trenching around the building, filling it full of rock to make sure that the the water was intercepted. It goes down into the trench and then the trench was sloped so that the excess water would move around the building or whatever needs to be protected. So you need to consider those things, too much, too little. What do I need to do? What strategy is the right strategy? Yeah. And then building soil that holds lots of water. Yeah. In fact, I just, when you first came on like 10 minutes before, you saw me working on my phone. Yeah. I was answering a post on Facebook. This woman has a backyard on Facebook that's completely dirt, block wall Uh, and dirt. Oh, and that doesn't hold any water. No. And it's probably designed to run the water off yeah. out into the street. Yeah. And first thing I told her to do was and I, when I do a garden consult, in fact, I have a garden consult to, uh, tomorrow. When I do a garden consult, when somebody shows me a dirt backyard, that's the first thing I tell them to do. Get your water and electric in. This is what I told her <clears throat> on the Facebook post. I said, I would put a spigot at least in every corner of your yard. And while the trenches are dug, you might as well put in conduit because you might want to put electrical in later, maybe a chicken coop or a shed in the backyard and then or cover automatic it with... irrigation system. Yeah, exactly. And then I told her to put 12 to 18 inches of woody mulch down. At Woody Mulch does multiple things for us. First of all, you yep. can't grow in it. Nope. But what it does long-term at that interface between the dirt and the Woody Mulch, it makes really healthy soil. Organic but, matter. Organic matter. There you go. What else does it do, Don? 
but it's a sponge. So yep. when it rains, it tends to stay there. It doesn't really flow because you've created this web effect, speaking patterns. The yep. web effect of the mulch binding together reduces runoff, reduces evaporation, increases soil water, soil penetration. Yeah. It keeps the soil cooler. Yeah. In the summertime, it keeps it warmer in the wintertime. Yeah. Uh, I was at a client's maybe four years ago, and he'd put two feet of woody mulch in, through his entire backyard. Oh, yeah. It was an amazing thing. And it hadn't rained in five months. And I showed up there, and I asked him for a shovel, and he gave me a shovel, and I dug a hole in his ba- the middle of his backyard. And 10 inches down, it was wet. And I said, have you been watering this? He said, no. Yeah. Just what holds on to the rain. In fact, Janice is giving a presentation for the water harvesting summit, how she transformed her backyard Uh with with woody mulch. Yeah. Makes a huge difference. Adding organic matter. What about how do we do that same thing in our gardens, Don? Uh, Well, you can, once you have your primary plants planted, in your situation, then you can put the woody mulch around, but not right up against the crown of the plant. You want to keep right. a little gap around the crown. Otherwise, you're, right. you're choking. <laughs> there you go. But we can add compost. Absolutely. Compost you... is like the product from decomposition from the woody mulch and or the greens and browns combined break down to make compost. Yes. So you have raised garden beds in your backyard. I have a slightly raised garden bed, but it's 20 by 20. So it's a large area and it still harvests the rain. I just can't move water from one area up into it. But what lands there stays there. Yeah. Nice. Yes. And how do you build the soil for water retention in your garden beds? In my garden bed, I'm in an area in Mesa, which is primarily clay soil. So it's mm-hmm. high clay content with some silt, some sand, but mostly clay. So I knew after I did my soil characteristic jar test, I shake the jar, I let it settle, and then I can got the percentages of what my main characteristics are, sand, silt, clay. And then I knew what I needed to add once I had done that. So I have primary clay. So I needed to add some sand, some mulch, compost. I added peat. I added some vermiculite. I added sulfur. I added other nutrients in there, gypsum and different things to start to build dead soil. Dead soil that had been derelict for a while. Mm -hmm. I needed to resurrect it. And adding water and nutrients will resurrect that soil because your goal is to get to what people call loam, L-O-A-M. A loam-based soil is the sweet spot in the middle of the USDA soil profile triangle. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's your goal. So find out what you've got. Then you know what to bring in. There you go. All right, great. So we talked about you're finding your water source. We talked about building soil, water retention, retensive soil. And now it's time to water your garden. What are you doing to water your garden? I have three 
method. So I have my rainwater system, which is where I put it in containers and then use that water in between my rain. So during my dry seasons. So May and June, where we are right now, bone dry. Yeah. And then we'll have some monsoon rains during the summer, which are fast, heavy, ferocious types of rain. The Native American people here call that a male rain. Whereas in the winter, it's longer, lighter, more gentle, and they call that a female rain. Oh, really? And then in between that, during October time, we have another dry spell. End of September to the beginning of November, we have another dry spell there. So I'd use some water for that period of time. From my tap water system, I have both a spray system for my vegetable garden and a drip system that circumnavigates my whole home site, my whole yard. Front, back, sides, everything. One valve, one line, does the whole thing. Right now I'm running it for two hours every three days. And this is for your perennial bushes and trees? All my perennial, my trees, my plants, my herbaceous plants, my flowers, whatever that might be. It's just my vegetable garden that's on the overhead spray system, which is the water-saving stream spray. So they come out as a stream, not a mist. A mist is terrible because that just evaporates, especially this time of year. This morning at 11 o'clock, it was 105 degrees wow. Fahrenheit at 11 this morning, 10 o'clock this morning. Yeah. That's just going to evaporate right away. There's no moisture in the air. It's just going to go poof and it's gone. You're, it's like throwing money away. So you got to water at night or first thing in the morning. So time matters and then mm-hmm. season matters. So I generally don't change my length of watering. I change the frequency of watering. So in the winter, maybe once a week or once every 10 days, but in the summer, every three days. That's how I regulate my water. And then I got my eyes. So I'm out watering my pots by hand, deliberately, my potted flowers, my herbs in pots or whatever it is under my patio. And I'm watering by hand. And then as I'm doing that, I'm going walking around the yard. And I'm also inspecting, observing what's in my irrigation system, just in case it doesn't yeah. work. Yeah. And I, it, it's on me, right? It's on me, especially my food. And then what do you do? Do you have drip irrigation for your garden beds, the food garden? Well, beds? for some of my garden but yes, all my garden beds have drip irrigation. And I have several different types i have the drip tube with individual emitters yep. the emitters go to a plant emitted to a plant emitted to a plant in my flower garden bed that's closest to the house i have inline drip where in the tube oh, yeah. are inline emitters every 12 inches or every 18 inches and so depending on your plant's needs Every 12 inches will be an emitter for the whole flower bed. And I have a shutoff valve just for that area. So I can just shut the whole thing off, focus on everything else. 
And then when I'm ready to put flowers back in, I'll turn it back on and resurrect that bed. And so I can manage the water needs based on my many decades of experience. I'm not saying this is for a new person, but I'm saying that this is a method of which you'll be practicing. Yeah. And do you use drip tape at all? I'm not into drip tape yet. I am looking, I have a roll, but the roll hasn't gotten itself out in my garden yet. But I'm going to do a test site, absolutely, because that would be a good experiment. Yeah, Ronald says, I have drip tape rather than drip line. I'm a huge fan. You know this, I'm a huge fan of drip tape. In fact, about quarterly, Janice and I do a, drip tape class if anybody's interested in the last recording of our drip tape class just send me an email at greg at urbanfarm.org and say hey how about that drip tape class in the drip tape class we actually talk about how to get the water from your water source city water or water to the gardens we talk about the water source we talk about the timer we talk about the zones we talk about and distinguish all of that yeah good Uh, that's good yeah it's a good class to take yeah um the reason i like drip tape is because it self-manages for heavy heavy nutrients in the water every time it turns on it flushes it off the other thing i like about drip tape is that it it pressurizes the entire system equally equally before it starts dripping and that's really important because with most drip irrigation systems you get more water at the beginning than you do at the end right yeah yeah Yeah, that's my the downside to my inline drip system but on my drip system where i have emitters to a plant those are pressure compensating emitters so there are they will balance the whole system Ah, oh very good nice so That's I got nice, I got nice. kind of this kind of similar but not the same. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so my only concern about the drip tape is hard deposits build up. Yeah, it's self cleaning. Self cleaning. Yeah, when it turns on, it washes out the little the little emitters. It's really <clears throat> interesting. Okay, I do love that. Yeah. Cool. We've got questions. Let's take a Uh few of those. No, that's a good thing. (laughs) Linda says, can you use water from washing machines? Clothes. All right. So she says clothes and dishwasher that have soap. So let's talk about clothes washing machines first. Yes, you can. If you have the right kind of laundry soap. And it's not going out onto your veggies. It's going out onto ornamentals. Yeah. Ornamentals or fruit trees. Fruit trees. Yes. That would be great. Yes. Yeah. And one soap that we really like is called Oasis Biocompatible Soap. Yeah. Biocompatible Um, is what you're looking for. Yeah. And basically it turns into fertilizer. Sweet. Yeah, that is nice. So it's always That's stacking functions again. That is stacking functions again. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. So yes, you can use it from washing machines, clothes washing machines. Dishwashers are considered black water. Right. Anywhere there's grease, oil, where fats, those kind of things are frowned upon going out to the garden because it's 
eventually it's going to stink. So yeah. you should avoid that. Yeah. So yeah, look up Oasis biocompatible soap. Yeah. I actually found some on Amazon the other day. Now on the other side, I have my outdoor shower like you used to have at your yep. place back in yep. Phoenix. I have an outdoor shower. So I take me outside. The gray water just lands on the ground and just does its thing. So I just yep. shower outdoors, May, basically May through September, June through September. When the water's tepid here, we don't get cold water in the house in the right, summer. Exactly. It's tepid. <laughs> or warm. Yeah. Warmish, depending on how far it has yeah. to come. Yep. Yeah. Anything else on using? There's lots of gray water regulations, and the city of Scottsdale and Arizona in particular have been like the forerunners for setting up the regulations by city and municipalities on gray water harvesting. So you should be able to find all you need, and you can look up Art Ludwig, who's one of the pioneers of mm -hmm. setting up the gray water distribution systems and the like, making an oasis with laundry or something like that. I can't remember his book now. Called Create an Oasis with Gray Water. There you go. Yeah. It's close. It was so close. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Let's see here. Barry says, did you indicate that woody mulch should not be placed against a tree, but to leave a gap between the tree and the edge of the mulch? And why? Because fungus, fungi can propagate right around the base of the tree and in, and then get into the tree and then your tree dies from fungal rot. Yeah. Primarily. I want to keep it. And when we, yeah, we, we run a fruit tree education program and people get fruit trees from us in Phoenix. Yeah. And we have people plant the tree up on a mound with soil around it and then put woody mulch in the basin around it. That's what we tell people right. to do. And Mary Lynn yeah. wants, go ahead. No, I was just saying that you're right. You don't want to drown a tree. So yeah. you want to make sure it gets, the root gets the water it needs. The tree bit, and the, the bit out in the ground, that doesn't care about the water. It's the right. roots you need to worry about. Yeah. And it's the roots on the outer lying edge of the tree that you need to get the water to. Yeah. Do not worry about right next to the trunk. There's no feeding roots there at all. It's on the edge where the canopy of the tree comes down. That's where you want to put the water. Yeah. One of the big problems with drip irrigation systems is people put a drip emitter right next to the trunk and don't ever bother to move it. Move it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mary Lynn wants to know, where do you buy woody mulch in Phoenix? We don't buy it. We just sign up for chip drop. Yep, there's a we website. We talk to called... our arborists around here, and we can talk to our municipalities. A number of, of our cities have a mulch distribution system because mm -hmm. they don't want to fill up the landfill with a bunch of Woody stinky mulch. trees and things because that creates methane, and methane is the bad guy in our climate situation right now. So we want to keep that methane out of our landfills and use it to the highest use we can it's silly putting it in the ground when we need it on the ground so this makes sure we that every resource we have goes to the highest value and then it serves us better yes perfect that's chipdrop.com that's that website 
Yes. Uh, check with your local municipality. That's it's another national. possibility. Yes. Yeah. Chipdrop.com is national. Yeah. And while we're here on websites, I want to go back a little step. That if people want to know what their rain is doing in their area, they can sign up for uh, rainlog.org. Very good. In fact, rainlog.org. I got the founders of that on the podcast, so I'm excited about that. Ooh, yeah, that's exactly. going to be fun. Yeah, well, yep. I'm a logger and you're a logger, and yeah. it helps, right? Yep. So yep. if you do want to buy woody mulch in smaller amounts, Arizona Worm Farm in Phoenix yep. has it available. You can buy it from them. We do have really small amounts, cubic foot bags at the fruit tree program when we do our fruit tree program in January. So we got you covered all over the place. Pun intended. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mary Lynn wants to know, this is a good one. This is a good Don question. Yeah. Mary Lynn wants to know, if you have a barrel to collect water, how yes. do you control the mosquitoes? Yes. Okay. You have a barrel and some of the barrels are closed lids. So you'd have to cut that out. And other barrels, which is a better deal, costs a bit more, but it's a better deal, has a clamp top where the lid just, you unclamp it and then take the lid off. And then that's a sealed unit, but you have to cut a hole in the top of that lid for that allow the downspout to put the water in. So mm -hmm. in between the lid and the downspout, you put a piece of window screen mesh that we keep our mosquitoes out of the house. You use the same product. If you cut the top off of a sealed one, then you cut a bigger square or circle out of it, and you then tie a string around it and keep that mosquito window screen mesh on there. That keeps out all the mosquitoes. Yeah. Anywhere they can get in with a quarter inch of a gap, or that's less. what you need to make sure yeah. it's covered up some way. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then the other piece of that is it needs to be darkened. Yes. By Secondly, you need to keep the sun out of the water. Because if the sun gets to the water, you've seen deserted swimming pools before, it goes green. Yeah. Green is the algae. Algae, when algae blooms, it starts to stink. And so you've got to dump the tank, you've got to scrub it out and start over. Yeah. And yeah, so you definitely you want to keep a, if especially if you've got a bigger tank like a cistern or one of those big water tanks, you want to make sure it's sealed from the light and from the mosquitoes and other bugs. Yeah, yeah, perfect. All right, great Let's question see here. Alicia Rose says, mm -hmm. "Is this the gray water book? Create an oasis with gray water integrated design for water conservation, reuse." Rainwater Harvesting and Sustainable Landscaping. Yes, that is the book. I bought it 30 years ago in Seattle, of all places. And it was a photocopied version of it back then. I still have oh, that on the show. Wow. Yeah, that was the early version. Let's see here. All right. So there's a couple of technical questions here, Don. Okay. I don't know if we're going to have answers. Let me just read them. What Ronald wants to know, what volume of water would I get with an eight-foot drip line and 10 PSI running for an hour. 10 PS pounds per square inch, 10 PSI an hour with an eight inch transfer pipe? And no, volume of water, eight foot drip line, eight foot, 10 PSI. Eight yeah. foot long drip line. 
10 so, PSI is pretty low. Yeah, the 10 PSI, you have to have the, if you're doing drip tape, you yeah. have to have 10 PSI, otherwise you blow out your system. If you're talking about the stuff that we sell, Ronald, it's each emitter is a half a gallon per hour. So just add up the emitters and for the length of the tube. Yeah, for the length of the tube, and that'll that'll give you the answer. So thirty emitters would be fifteen gallons an hour. There you go. Okay. Let's see here. Here's the other technical one, and this one's even more technical. I would like to run a Rainbird impact sprinkler from a two hundred and seventy-five gallon non-pressurized IBC tote. Oh. Those are those those are those plastic totes yeah. with the metal frames around them. Oh, I know. Sprinkler requires 25 to 50 PSI with flow rates of two to five gallons per minute. What right. kind of pump should I purchase? Yeah. Since you Good got uh, the, that the square container, you're going to need a submersible pump that has enough PSI or, in it to run that the clapper system. That's probably not the best type of irrigation system unless you're putting it the tripod out and you're putting the clapper in the corner and you just yeah you're just sending water out through the air which you're losing a portion of that through evaporation especially mm -hmm. if you're not doing it at night so yeah 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 may not be the best choice mate but if it's the only choice you got then that's what you're going to need. You're going to need to go to an irrigation store or harbor freight tools or what have you got in your area and get a submersible pump. Uh, or you could put one inline on the outside, like a pool pump. You could put one on inline on the outside. So that would be, yeah, that would be a intermediate pump. The submersible is easier. You just drop it in with the hose line on it and then you hook it up to your sprinkler system. So yeah. that has its advantages. Follow up, could the IBC tote irrigation be run from an irrigation pump? I don't see why not. It can. It's, just, it's an experiment and go figure it out and let us know how it works. I don't At think least. the tank has enough water to see, water an area of lawn with a clapper spray with two to four inches of water per minute or whatever it's going to move. So uh, yeah, you, you might need to reevaluate right. your choices. <laughs> and, how, and it also depends how much water they get there. Yes, that too. You know, how often does that IBC tote fill up? Right. I'm a big fan of passive. So I'd figure out how to set the IBC tote up higher and then gravity feed the thing. Yes, that's another way. I have four IBC totes here that I purchased last fall. And I'm. Why do you have four storage uh, tanks? In Asheville, North Carolina, great. Because I uh, something I wanted to play with. <laughs> we'll see. We will see. Let's see. Alicia says, any thoughts about worm composting of food waste for soil moisture retention and organic matter buildup? Oh yeah, use all kinds of worm castings. Absolutely. That's, that's what I planted. So when I was building my vegetable garden and I was mm -hmm. putting all the stuff in. After I got it all raked out and I got some moisture in there, that night I planted my night crawlers. So I just knocked out a little uh, trench, little narrow yeah. trench at sunset and then laid the worm in the trench and then covered the worm up so it would still get some air. 
and then overnight it would feed and then at the daybreak it goes back yep. down yeah there you go Mary Lynn said, did we just suggest that we water at night in Phoenix? We, I always watered first thing in the morning. Early morning. Yeah. I would, I start my drip system like around five in the morning or four, depending on how long I'm running it for. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to run it like eight o'clock, 8 PM, 7 PM in there, because then again, we have the fungus problems with that wetness overnight uh, that can encourage some of the fusariums and the different fungal situations that can produce blights and rots and those yeah. kind of things in our especially in our heavy soils not so oh. much in the sandy stuff but definitely in the clay soils. soils yeah let's see here terry says i was thinking of getting two dwarf fruit trees for my small backyard they live in oro valley do they take a lot of water yes fruit trees take more water can they be grown in pots? I wouldn't. Growing, growing, really Wait, growing. You said dwarf, but is it it's, dwarf, dwarf, or semi-dwarf? There you go. But it's less about the size of the tree and more about just it's hard to grow things in pots in the summertime. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're watering brutal. twice a day. Yeah, it's brutal on yeah. them. So if you can get them in the ground, that'd be great. I heard you have good information on fruit trees. I have been growing fruit trees. I'm going to rant here a little bit. I've been growing fruit trees in Phoenix. I grew fruit trees in Phoenix from 1974 to 2022. That's 40-something years. We run the fruit tree education program, which I've been running for 24 years now. We do our monthly tree chat just like this. We talk about fruit trees. But also in the fall, we offer all kinds of classes on growing fruit trees. So go to fruittrees.org and that's my website and sign up for our fall classes and put your trees in the ground. Linda wants to know, can avocado trees be grown in Phoenix? It can, but the only ones I've seen do fairly well are the ones in flood irrigation where they get deep water, no Mm. water, deep Mm. water, no water. Yeah. They need, and they're semi-tropical. How many actually? How many avocado trees have you seen producing in Phoenix? Not not that many. (laughs) Just a few. Yeah, I've only seen one. I've only seen one, and most of the fruit trees that I've ever seen planted, and I've seen hundreds and hundreds of them planted, have all died. The summer heat gets to them, so they're hard. Linda wants to know, why did I move? The big reason is for about the past 15 years, I've been wanting to go someplace quiet and where I can grow a lot more of my own food. We found, I went from a quarter acre in the middle of 4.7 million people to four acres in a community of about 4,000 people right outside of Asheville, North Carolina. And Mary Lynn wants to know, how's my elderberry project going? I have got a video coming here in the next two weeks. But this past Saturday, we planted 80 or so elderberry trees. That was a big project. We planted 15 blueberries, two blackberries, two raspberries, a cherry bush, some service berries and mulberries, total of 100 and 
105 plants we got planted out last last Saturday. That was a project. I've never planted that many trees all at once. So any last thoughts, Don? Oh, make the water work for you. Find ways to, like you say, Greg, more passive systems, the more sustainable and regenerative that system is. The more technology you add, the greater the maintenance, the greater the cost, the more likely it is to break down. Perfect. Perfect, perfect. And we have, Don and I each year do our water harvesting summit. And Don, tell us a little bit about the water harvesting class that goes with the summit while I look up the URL for that. Yes, the class itself, it's going to cover many of the points that we've hit on today, but in a bit more bit more technical, a bit more strategized. And we're going to talk about key line design and swales and microbasins and different ways to manage the water off the roof, which is your watershed. The roof begins your watershed area, which is the place where you can begin to harvest the water and then relocate it to where it's needed, whether it's in the ground or whether it's in a container, and then how to use it and when to use it, all kinds of stuff related to water and there's different sources and different purposes. Yeah, and this is something that you and I have been doing for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, And my home site is a demonstration site of much of what we're talking about here. So from my experience, I I don't have flood irrigation and, and Greg did have that benefit. And so I've needed to manage my property to be able to grow food in, a, in, a, in an intelligent manner with what circumstances I have. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much for tonight. It's water harvesting summit.com you can it's something we do every summer and we have some great speakers this year and uh, let's see alicia says thank you stephanie says thank you to both of you mary lynn says greg and don you are awesome and so educational thank you thank you thank you fist bump fist bump there you go (laughs) all right guys have a good one and come and join us for our water harvesting summit all right thank you have a good one talk to you later Bye. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams.